Hey everybody and welcome to True Crime Paranormal with the Psychic Sisters. This is Katie Weaver and I'm here with my co-host and partner in crime and sister Christy Brower. Hello. Hello. Hey everybody. Excited to be here for case number two of the week. Yeah and it is a doozy. Oh yeah. goodness. Isn't it though? Yeah. Yes it is. How are you? You know I'm really good. Really good. Just you know, I don't know, excited about stuff coming up. We're going to be able to take a little trip at the end of April. We're going camping, feeling a little more like life is getting back to somewhat normal, you know, kind of normal. Yeah. In just another couple of weeks, my wife and son and I will all be fully vaccinated. We're just waiting for Rhonda for her second shot. Yeah. My in-laws um, are almost completely vaccinated. So after a year of not really being able to see them, we're going to be able to see them. Lots yeah. of good stuff happening. It's just kind of mm -hmm. like COVID has changed everything. Don't get me wrong. But yeah. some things are starting to kind of get back to a place of feeling a little safer and a little more normal. Yeah. And that's yeah. nice. Well, good. Yes. We have, what, I think about 14 more days and we'll, 12 more days and we'll be fully vaccinated at my house too. Yeah, so very so exciting. Awesome. Yeah. I read an article today that killed me and I'm still yeah. just laughing about it. Mm. Uh, apparently at the Costco in Anchorage, they're having a real problem so with awesome. ravens stealing people's groceries while they're trying to get them into their cars. <laughs> and and most just groceries, but like not just groceries, pieces of meat. They are tearing mm. open packages and taking off with steaks and short ribs and yeah. Stealing meat from people as they are trying to get it into their cars. I, you know, I got to say, um, score one for the Ravens. Like, I'm totally <laughs> down with this. I yeah. love Ravens. They're so mm -hmm. freaking smart. And I think it's hilarious that they have right? figured this out. Well, and the shoppers are saying it's an organized event. Yeah. Like, there are, you know, more than one Raven involved in the activity. There's about three and they all have a job, you know, and while one's maybe being a dick over here, this one's over here taking your meat, you know? <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, that yeah. they're, like, using um, distraction and stuff. They're mm -hmm. so freaking smart. It's, it's, oh. it's the way monkeys team up and do things like that in India, you know? Yeah. This is, the ravens are doing it in Anchorage. So, you know, they're hungry, and you're coming out with carts full of all kinds of fabulous stuff, and by God, they want it. So Right, they surely do. Mm -hmm. I just love that. I, just... I think if I was a shopper coming out of Anchorage, uh, Costco, I'd have a plan for what I was going to give the Ravens. Yeah, you know, no kidding. Not let them rob you. Give them something that you want them to have, you know? Yeah, give them something so that you can get mm -hmm. get away with the rest of your food. But buy three of those bats of uh, Costco hot dogs for the Ravens. I don't know what, but. Right. right. <laughs> well, it... That's didn't probably not of, good for them. Didn't one of the people in the article say that they're fat, so they're. They've always got obviously got a plan that's working <laughs> because they are some fat birds. Yes. God, it's so funny. So funny. Yeah. Anyway, wow. Yeah, I've been laughing about it all day, but yeah. Uh we have a hell of a case for you guys today. Oh it's boy. A, it's a this is our joint case, so we're both teaming up on it. So this is the case of Paul Ezra Rhodes. And you guys maybe have heard his name before. He is a serial killer. He, uh, you know, uh, hails from our lands. He comes from Idaho Falls, Idaho. 
that's uh, right in this area are where most of his crimes were committed. It's where and, I live, guys. It's where I live. Mm-hmm. One Honestly, of the gas stations where he committed a murder is right down the road from my house. Yeah, and you know, these the murders happened when I was 10. Yeah. And so I feel like, like I've always heard about this case. Mm-hmm. And I really remember when he was executed, because uh, that wasn't that very long ago. But mm-hmm. I I also remember the attitude that our mom always had about anyone with the last name Rose. Yeah. And now I'm kind of starting to understand it and go, oh, got well, it. I did not as a kid understand the depth of his crimes at all. I didn't either. But this mugshot, this one that I'm I'm showing right now, if you're watching the video, uh, that was on TV everywhere for a long mm-hmm. time after he was arrested. I'll never yes. forget that picture. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, so let's get into it because let's it is quite it. the tale. It so is. he was born in 1957 and uh, to parents, August and Pauline Rhodes in Idaho mm-hmm. Falls. Uh, he came from a long line of poverty, neglect, domestic violence, alcoholism, drug abuse, mental illness, suicide, his family ran the gamut of mm-hmm. struggles. Yeah. His dad was illiterate and really could not handle uh, being a dad, a father, a, a human, you know? Yeah, he just didn't have the skills to. to and do mom things. struggled too. It seems like she struggled with mental health as well as both of his parents seemed to struggle with um, intelligence, actually. Yeah. Yeah. If that's a nice way to say that, you know, but, mm-hmm. uh, and they had a really yeah, hard time. Developmental, some developmental disability issues, I think. Yep. And the kids were not well taken care of. No. Not well taken care of. And they had four sons. Well, they had four children together. They, she actually had five children because she had an older son as well. So when Paul was four, he got polio. Yeah. And he was hospitalized, and a lot of times they would end up having to take him to Salt Lake City, to the children's hospital there, mm-hmm. and be left there for months at a time for them mm-hmm. to take care of him. And mom would have to come home and take care of her kids, and he'd be down there alone yeah. without anybody to keep an eye on him or visit him at all. Because that's a, you know, at the time that was, what, about a four-hour car trip, maybe longer Probably Speed limits longer have changed really significantly in the last 20 years. So yeah, maybe even five hours was, you know, mm-hmm. Southeast Idaho, a lot of, we all go to Salt Lake for various things because mm-hmm. it's the biggest, it's the closest large city to us. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that was even a, now for good medical. Yeah. Heck yeah. Oh yeah. And, and various other things that you can't yeah. get here, but yeah, that was, I can't imagine what that must have been like to have a child that needed to be, yeah, well, and for, that far away. Yeah, and for a family in that kind of poverty to mm-hmm. have to be able to afford the gas and also to be able to pay for or to even have a car that was good enough to make a drive that long, like yeah. it all just seems extremely uh, unlikely, you know. I, I'm sure it was a huge hardship for, for the family. Yeah. So he went through all kinds of treatments. One of his feet uh, and legs were really twisted up from yeah. polio. And so he lived for a long time with a cast. So they finally bring him home and the cast smells really bad. And they finally decide that they need to take him to the doctor. Again, 
not good care, right? Mm -hmm. So they finally take him to the doctor and they pull a cast off and his leg is full of gangrene and is literally rotting away. Can you imagine how much pain this baby was in? No. I mean, at that age, he was like five or six. He was really little. Yeah. God, it makes me sick to think of the neglect and, and what he went through when he was little. Yeah, he sure Just did. sick. So he continued to have surgeries clear until he was 12 to try and fix his leg. Yeah. And he still had a bad limp and was in pain, like yeah. always. So they lived in a tiny house uh, on 6th Street in Idaho Falls. That's mm -hmm. the numbered streets in Idaho Falls are lots and lots of fairly small houses close together. Some beautiful little cottages and stuff there now. Mm -hmm. But at the time, that was like poverty row. Mm -hmm. And some of it still is, honestly. But mm -hmm. at any rate, um, his dad was a terrible alcoholic at this point, drinking all the time, couldn't hold down a job. Mom was trying to work and keep him going. You know, he'd been in and out of jail quite a few times. He'd attempted suicide a few times. So much domestic violence in the house that the police were constantly there. And Paul sometimes ended up fighting his dad to try to protect his mom. He many times had to go down to local bars and drag his dad out of there and make him come home. Yeah. Like it was a mess. So his grandpa and his uncles were no different. Like the whole family was just, it was a bad, bad deal. Yeah. And they taught him how to drink when he was 10. Yeah. Alcohol started was a norm for this kid by the time he was 10 years old. And then, of course, recreational drugs that followed. Cocaine, LSD, speed. Yeah. And within their family, quite a few people were drug addicts. There were some suicides that happened when he was uh, like in, in his teenage years. Yeah. Lots of family members in and out of jail. Just so much dysfunction. Yeah. So at 16, he drops out of school and he goes to work for an uncle who has a drywalling business. So he works there in Idaho Falls and then sometimes in Washington, travels with his uncle. And basically that's like the best, most steady thing he ever did have was that mm -hmm. time. And, and he mm -hmm. sent money home to his mom. To try and keep his family going. Yeah. And that's kind of what he did to try and, you know, help and make a better situation. But when meth really hit Idaho Falls, he started. Which it definitely using did meth. and still has. Yeah. We have a huge meth problem here. When he mm -hmm. started taking meth, it sent him down a really dark, steep path real yeah. fast. And he went from being this kid that was trying to help his family and his mom and earning money to an absolute disaster, to a criminal, to a very scary person, um, to a guy who, you know, was not taking care of himself, who was committing various crimes, who was breaking in places, stealing money, stealing money from his family. Just it, it went hard and fast. It, it really did, because a lot of people who talk about him say that they were so surprised when he did the things that he did because he had been a different person before meth. Yeah. Yeah, totally. But I mean, the history is all there too. For oh yeah. Creating a serial killer, his, his growing up history. And so you can't say mm -hmm. it was all the drugs, but no. 
obviously in this case, at least to some extent, you know, he had like a huge personality change. Yeah. Started using meth. But I mean, the criminal behavior wasn't new. No, no. And what he was exposed to. Yeah. But his family said he became totally unrecognizable. You know, he was staying up for days and days and days at a time, not showering, not taking care of himself, not eating, you know, like, you know, a meth addict, you know. Yeah. yeah. We, we know what that looks like, you know, mm-hmm. now. But it was, meth was due on the scene at that point, you know. Yeah. And, and I think that a lot of people didn't really understand what that looked like. But Right. These days, you know, you'd immediately be like, hey, wait a minute. I think this guy's using meth. But yeah, this yeah. was the mid 80s and. People just weren't as aware. Yeah, pretty new stuff. So in Idaho Falls, there was a spree of crimes that started on February 28th, 1987. So on that date, there was a girl that was working at a place called the Red Mini Barn Convenience Store. Her name was Stacy Dawn Baldwin. She was 21. And she was kidnapped from the store in Blackfoot, Idaho. Blackfoot is, what, about 30 miles from Idaho Falls? 25, yeah. And she was taken into a secluded location, and he attempted to sexually assault her. She ran, and she was shot in the back several times and died. And that was February 28th. On March 17th, there was a kid, a student, a CSI student, or the College of Idaho, well, not College of Idaho, a, a technical school student here in Idaho Falls that yeah. was working at a place called Buck's Convenience Store in Idaho Falls. Which is literally and, right down the road from my house. I go there all the time. Yep. And he was shot uh, multiple times, and his body was found in the store's walk-in cooler, and he died. Yeah. And then on March 19th, so we have February 28th, March 17th, March 19th. Like, this is really escalating. And now we've had two murders, like, and murders around here, you know, we've talked about that before, are pretty rare. And so the whole area is really tense because... When in the mid-80s, I mean, especially rare. Like, it's quite a bit more common now to hear a story like this than it would have been then. Yeah. So then on March 19th, 1987, so just two days later, uh, a woman named Susan Mickelbacher, she was 34. She was a special ed teacher at a great elementary school. She was sick. She woke up that morning sick and decided she was not up to going to school that day. So she left home at 630. She told her husband she was going to go take lesson plans, drop them off at school, grab a couple of things at the store and come home and rest for the day. She just didn't feel good. And she never came back. Mm-hmm. So she was kidnapped in a grocery store parking lot at about 7 a.m. And in her van, and it sounds like from uh, accounts from tellers that he was in the passenger seat and she was driving, yeah. at least at this point. Uh, they drove to a bank, and the moment the bank opened, she pulled up to the drive through window with a check for $1,000 and cashed it, and then immediately went to another branch of that bank and did the same thing. So he forced her to withdraw $2,000 from the bank. And 
lots, there are people that throughout that day, there are lots of witnesses that saw him and her in that van, her driving or him driving that morning at any rate. Eventually, he drives her to a rural location, rapes her, shoots her nine times, resulting in her death. And hers is just particularly heinous because it is likely that he actually had sex with her dead body. And she had a mouthful of his semen. Yes. Just so awful. So gross. So awful. Well, and also he shot her with a thirty-eight revolver. And yeah. he had to reload. Yeah. He, and that was one of the things that has been of real note in this case is yeah. how many times he shot his victims. Yeah. They were all shot five or more times. Yeah. And, yeah. and even with her, with this last victim, he had to reload his handgun to shoot her some more. Yeah. You know, the the, the yeah. anger and the hatred behind that and the just extreme violence behind that is, is terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. So all of these murders happen. Um, it takes them two days to find Susan Micklebocker, to mm-hmm. find her body, uh, but they do. In the meantime, Paul is back home at his mother's house in Idaho Falls uh, with a big roll of money, telling people he just came into some money and he wants to go and gamble. Yeah. So on March 25th, he steals his mother's car and takes off. And he crashes it near Wells, Nevada, and then Mm -hmm. just leaves it. There are a couple of truckers that saw him crash, saw him get out of the car and fiddle around with something brown and then kind of throw it in the weeds next to the car and just walk away. So they call the police and the police come and check it out. Well, they find her car, which she actually had a reported stolen. Yeah. Which is really interesting, you know, because she she knew her son had it, but she was done with him. Yep. You got to think about Wells, Nevada for a minute, too, because we've been there. Jesus. Yeah. If you wreck your car outside of Wells, Nevada, there is nothing. 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 It's just sagebrush. So you get to Wells, which has like a casino and a convenience store. I mean, it's a tiny little place. Yeah. Yeah. A seedy, dirty. <clears throat> used yeah. to be full of brothels, but it's not anymore. They're all no. closed. I'm no. not sure if there were brothels open there in the 80s, though. That's a question I had. But I wondered about that, too. There sure could have been. But I was yeah. thinking about what that drive because we've driven from jackpot to wells before yeah curious why he went to wells and not jackpot because jackpot's way closer right and maybe he was just trying to get some distance and it's an awful drive between jackpot and wells an awful drive. it's just nothing i mean you gotta understand we are southeast idaho and nevada you know this part of the country we're in a high desert so it's just it's just sagebrush and Nothing <laughs> for yeah, tons of miles, and so I thought, wow, that's an interesting choice to wreck your car outside of Wells and then just mm-hmm. what walk, right? Maybe at least it was in, I wondered if he hitchhiked because at least it was far? in March. Because if it was summer, yeah. it, it'd freaking kill you. It's not, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. um, but I found that really interesting. Like, wow, there's absolutely there's no help there, right? And, no, and maybe he did hitchhike into town. I really wondered because if depending on how far he was outside of Wells, that's kind of daunting. But all there is is this highway. Just that's it. Yeah, there's nothing else. No. Oh. 
we drove there once and then we wondered why because yeah. <laughs> it's awful we sure did yeah so this police or uh truckers you know tell the police what they saw and that they saw him with something they find the gun yeah they find the gun and some uh stuff in the car that make them think that uh this is a person of interest, right? Mm-hmm. And so they find him gambling in wells at a blackjack table. And they arrest him. And he starts, they start questioning him. In the car, he doesn't want to talk to him. He's uncomfortable. It's it's a miserable experience. And then they get him to the police station and they start questioning him. And Christy, there's an incident that he had had with uh mannequin so in lightness tell me that story yeah okay so there were this is really before officials had figured out that he was the serial killer right but there were was always also already a warrant out for his arrest and that warrant was for a string of burglaries in the idaho falls area including and this is gross but i'm gonna tell it to you anyway because we need to know these things Including a a lingerie store called, hang on, sorry, so many, so many tabs open. Where did that go? I just had that. Oh, here we go. Okay. Lavonda's lingerie, which I think became Carnation Intimate Apparel, which we do have here now. Mm -hmm. And here's what the police officer said. When we were in the car, I started to talk to him about, I was talking about the burglary of LaVonda's lingerie and only LaVonda's lingerie in the case because I wanted to start chronologically and get this whole thing, you know. So that happened before the murders. Yeah. That's when he didn't want to talk about it and he was kind of upset. Well, turns out when he robbed LaVonda's lingerie, he basically sexually assaulted a mannequin and left evidence behind that he'd done that. Mm-hmm. He also shot the mannequin with a 38 revolver. Yeah. And this happened before these murders in Idaho Falls. Yeah. Yeah. Creepy. As did some murders in Utah mm-hmm. that he was never actually charged and convicted for, but officials really believe that he did. Yeah, there are three names. There are three women that have been attributed to him, even though he was never charged with them. Mm-hmm. You want me to say those? Yeah. It's Christine Gallegos. She was 16. Carla Maxwell, who was 20. And Lisa Strong, who was 25. And they died in some of them. Some of the circumstances were similar in that they were mm-hmm. convenience store robberies in Salt Lake City. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then there were others. There were questions about others as well. And those, um, burglaries and murders did stop after he went to prison yeah there was another situation that maybe it was this other guy too but they officials in in salt lake city worked and worked and worked to try to exclude paul ezra Rhodes from those cases and they never had been they'd never been able to exclude those cases from him when he was asked about them he said he'd never been to salt lake city which we right. all know is a lie because he spent some time in there as a child. When he was a baby. Yeah, when he was a little kid. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, when you live in southeast Idaho, you've been to Salt Lake City. 
yeah. we've all been to Salt Lake City. It's yeah. it's sometimes your only choice of place to go for things. But there were yeah. there was evidence oh. and witnesses of him actually being in Salt Lake City at the time of some of these murders. Yeah. Yeah. But they really never had the opportunity to fully investigate him and yeah. and charge him with these crimes. And he just yeah. basically said he had no idea. Yeah. Well, and they had already, you know, they, in Idaho, they had already convicted him and gotten the death penalty. And so at some point they sometimes just leave those cases because, yeah. you know, he, he's already convicted. He's already going down. Yeah. So when they first picked him up was March 25th, 1987. Yeah. On March 24th, 1988, he was sentenced to death for the murder of Susan Nickelbacher. Mickelbacher. Mickelbacher. And then on March 13th, or May 13th, he was sentenced to death uh, for the murder of Stacey Baldwin. So they were just rolling him out. Now, on the Hayden murder, he actually uh, took an Alfred plea. He did. Yeah. Yeah. So then there was many years, a huge, long slew of appeals. Um, his attorneys were a little like the, like means attorney or like the Ballow attorneys and oh, Dave Bell attorneys that they were back in court over technicalities a million times. Well, but one of them actually, he tried to get his uh, convictions thrown out for a uh, lack of competent counsel at one mm -hmm. point. Well, uh, at the very beginning, he tried to say there was a Miranda violation. Yes. Too. Yep. That was one of them. There was, uh, there's so many of them. They tried to claim that uh, his rights were violated because of one word that the uh, prosecutor said wrong. So yeah. you have the right to not defend yourself in court. You have the right to not testify. Right. And the prosecutor may not use the fact that you don't testify as a reason to in, uh, in make the jury think that you're guilty because you didn't take the stand. Right. Uh, that's a constitutional right. And in one of the part of the questioning, the prosecutor said, what was it that the defendant said yesterday? And immediately the uh, defense attorney, you know, he, he interjected and said, I'm going to, I'm going to dispute that, you know, I'm going to object to that. And he said, oh, I'm sorry. I meant, what was it that the defense attorney said yesterday? Uh, that one word, mm -hmm. they were back in court years later trying to, you know, get a mistrial because he said that word incorrectly. And that was insinuating to the jury that he was guilty because he didn't uh, testify on his own behalf. It was stuff like that, like over and over and over back in court. Yeah, a whole bunch of stuff like that. Like that in itself is a huge study on uh, procedural and federal, state and federal procedure. Yeah, well, especially because he basically exhausted his appeals. Um, you're frozen on my end. I don't know if I'm frozen on your end. So finally. There we go. Got you back. So finally on in November, well, in, in the fall of 2011, the state mm -hmm. is finally ready. Yeah. Right. They're finally ready. 
there was a huge flurry of activity trying to, uh, you know, to, to stop it. So, again, he was convicted in 1988. Yeah. And in 2011, he was finally scheduled for death. On October 11th, 2011, the U.S. Supreme Court refused to hear the case. On October 19th, 2011, the Idaho Department of Corrections served Rhodes with a death warrant as ordered by the 7th Judicial Court uh, Judge John Schinderling. And that warrant ordered that Rhodes be executed on November 18th of 2011. On November 4th, the Idaho Commission of Pardons and Parole decided to deny the petition for a commutation hearing. On November 14th, a U.S. magistrate judge denies a stay of execution. On November 16th, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals denies an emergency stay. So they've gone through every single thing they can at the very yeah. last minute. Exhausted everything. So the day of uh, execution comes. And they have two groups of people outside of the prison. Uh, one group of anti-execution uh, uh, people that are protesting yeah. and praying and things. And then another group of people that are pro-execution. And they have to keep them separated with a fence because there's like this a very charged thing. Oh, yeah. It was a huge, huge deal. And there had been a battle in court with the press because it is constitutional law that in the case of execution, the press uh, and witnesses may be present. And Idaho's uh, rules, they had adopted a new set of rules around executions and around their method of execution, which uh, was lethal injection with three different substances. Yeah. And that was one of the things that his lawyers kept fighting, trying to claim that that was uh, most likely really going beautiful. to be botched and cruel and unusual and could cause a lot of suffering. And basically the courts were like, there's no real basis or evidence to really you know, show that that's true. Right. But the fight with the press was that... Uh, the press has the right to witness the full execution from the time he is brought into the execution chamber, all of the prep, everything that they do. And the state wanted to only open the curtain and allow the public viewing of the execution to start basically as the injection started. Right. So uh, anyway, all of that had gone all the way through the courts. Like Idaho was really uh, held by a, into account, you know, they really mm -hmm. uh, had their feet in the fire over this one to do it right. Mm -hmm. It again reminds me of the Vallo Daybell case in that this was a much larger case than uh, Idaho had ever really seen, uh, at least a in that area. Killer. Yeah, a serial killer and the uh, just all of the legalities and all of the times they went back to court and the mistakes that were made and it, it was exhausting for so long from 1988 to 2011 yeah but i want to tell you guys a little bit about what the day was like so at 4 a.m the media center opens to pre-approved news media personnel to gather at 5 45 a.m a selection of news media witnesses begins at six o'clock a.m a short news media briefing 
with the Idaho Department of Corrections Director, Brent Rinke. At 7 a.m., the Idaho Department of Corrections van is available for transport to the demonstration area. Because, I mean, it's very high security. I mean, this is Super. really well, all sanitized. Prisons and jails were on lockdown this whole day. Yes. In yeah. case they had riots anywhere else. Wasn't it? Mm -hmm. There hadn't been an execution in Idaho since, what, like 1957 when this one Something happened? like that, yeah. So it was yeah. a really big deal. Nobody really working this case had mm -hmm. ever been a part of an execution before. Yeah, no. So then, let's see. <laughs> I shouldn't have moved my eyes. All right, 7.15 a.m., news media witnesses are transported to the maximum security institution. At 7.20 a.m., the offender is moved from isolation to the execution chamber. At 7.30 a.m., the Idaho Department of Corrections van returns from the demonstration area. At 7.45 a.m., witnesses are escorted into the execution chamber, and there were family members or friends of family from all three families uh, of his victims, of the Idaho victims there. Mm -hmm as well as press. Mm -hmm. At 8 o'clock a.m., the IMSI's warden reads death warrant to the offender and witnesses. At 8.03 a.m., the warden asks offender if he wishes to make a final statement, which he does do. Mm -hmm. He did make a final statement. He apologized. He said to Bert Mickelbocker, I am sorry for the part I played in your wife's death. The part. Mm -hmm. For Haddon and Baldwin, I can't help you. You still have to keep looking. I'm sorry for your family. I can't help you. I took part in the Mickelbocker murder. I can't help you guys. I'm sorry. So insinuating that those weren't him, I guess. Mm -hmm. yeah. Then he says goodbye to his mom. And then he says to the executioner or, you know, the warden, the people that are there, he says to them, I forgive you. I really do. Those are his last words. Uh, he was offered a final meal beforehand. He wasn't offered a special meal. He was just offered the same thing everyone else had that day, uh, the night before, which was hot dogs, sauerkraut, mustard, ketchup, onions, relish, baked beans, veggie sticks, ranch dressing. Fruit with gelatin and strawberry ice cream cups. And that was the same meal that everyone had on the Idaho Maximum Security uh, Ward that day or floor that day. Uh, so no special meal for him. I, mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if he didn't want one or if that's just how they did it. But I think every state makes determinations like that. I don't uh -huh. think Idaho actually does that. Yeah. Yeah. So. Then the Idaho Department of Corrections director reconfirms that no legal impediments exist. You have to do one more double check. There hasn't been any emergency stay ordered from like a president or anything that we need to know about, right? There was not. So at 8.10 a.m., the administration of chemical begins. So there are three different uh, health professionals that have placed IVs. And they all start uh, injecting a different uh, fluid into him. Mm -hmm. um, it was said that they all had uh, masks covering their faces that kind of looked like burkas. So you mm -hmm. couldn't really see them. Yes, people are not allowed to know actually who administers yeah. yep. the actual lethal cocktail. 
So that was at 8.10. At 8.30 a.m., the coroner entered the chamber, examined the condemned, and pronounced his death. So it took 20 minutes from the time they began the injection to the time that he died. Yeah. Um, at 9.30 a.m., the news media briefing by the IDOC director, Brent Ranke, and media witnesses. 10.30 a.m., the demonstration area closes. And at 1 p.m., the media center closes. And that's what it looks like. It's crazy to think what I, it takes. Mm-hmm. I went back and watched some news stories from 2011 from that day. And I was thinking about, I remember seeing them, you know, yeah, uh, what a big deal it was. And just, I remember at the time what that felt like in my gut. Yeah. You know, and I kind of went, Oh, it still does. Oh mm-hmm. yeah. I don't, I don't think I would ever want to witness something like this. Yeah. Me either. I, even if it was a family member that, uh, I just don't think I could do that. I, you know, and, and I'm not saying I'm not for the death penalty or against it. That's a conversation for another day, but I don't think I could witness it. I think that would never leave me for the rest yeah. of my life. No, I, I agree. That's, I don't know, to witness it and to see him say his final words. And yeah, I don't yeah. know. It's, you know, it's not that I condone what he did, but I don't know if this is really mm-hmm. the way. Yeah. As he died, one of the uh, family members said the devil has returned to hell. Yes. And another one uh, called him a coward. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how it went. I mean, that's the life and times of Paul Ezra Rhodes. It's it's just, God, it's so sickening and heart-wrenching. Yeah. Yeah. Interestingly, in jail, he was known as a big gentle giant who was a peacemaker and a mentor and read the Bible and inspired his inmates to be better and let go of their anger and find better paths and help talk people down from violence. I mean, once he got off meth, you know, he kind of went back to the guy he was before that addiction. Uh, It's sad. It's so sad for the families of all these victims that it's the whole thing. Anyway, Yeah, it's sad for for them. It's sad for his family. Yeah, for him. I mean, you know, meth. You want to know what the devil is? It's meth. Yeah, yep, without a doubt. So that's the story of Paul Ezra Rhodes. Is there anything else you want to add? Uh, no, not really. Other than there were, there were at some point some insinuations that there were other people involved in some mm-hmm. of his crimes. Well, there was actually a confession. There yes. was a confession of one of them, uh, the one in uh, Blackfoot. Right. A guy who was, uh, he was picked up but put in a police car because for drunken disorderly conduct. And he started confessing to that murder for the, the girl from the little red barn. Yeah. And by the time they got him to the police station, he actually did write a statement. They interrogated him. And they say that he actually did fail a polygraph, but they still didn't believe that it was him. He didn't have all of the details correct. He had some right. of them, actually, but he didn't have them all. Right. And as soon as he sobered up, then he recanted and said, oh, I was just drunk and stupid. And I thought you guys were just cooking up a bunch of charges against me. So I was just going to let you throw a whole bunch more on. And that's why I said I did that. But I really didn't. 
Yeah, and they didn't really take him seriously, you know, but Rhodes always, you know, wanted to kind of insinuate that maybe he didn't do those or that he wasn't uh, alone in those. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he did, although his defense never presented any information to give Mm -hmm. an alternative uh, story of what happened, you know, that that was all insinuation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But even up to, you know, to the point of his execution, he would not admit to two of the murders that he was convicted of. Yeah. Which is interesting. We don't know. Um, you know. Right. But also the day that he killed uh, Michelle Michelbacher, he was driving around in her van and some people had identified him and a cousin and a sister all in that van, mm-hmm. her van that they had stolen after he killed her. And there is some question about where were they when all of these things were going down. Right. It is possible that he had accomplices that it, just it, it got off. Yeah, it certainly is. Um, but, you know, it's also possible that he just told them he stole the van. Yeah. You know, you don't yeah. know for sure what they knew. Right. Well, I mean, he did this. That That all happened very early in the morning. You right, know? and so it's very possible, yeah, that the the murder that was all done, and he just still had the van that he was rolling in, yeah, yeah. you know, and it's certainly some questions died with Rhodes, and definitely the questions about those cases in Salt Lake City, yeah, you know, yeah. he was not forthcoming about his crimes, and he did not, you know, leave behind any information, yeah that could have helped to solve any of those cases. He certainly didn't take any responsibility for them. It's strange to me if he did commit them, because really, I mean, he was on death row. He was executed. What are they going to do? Kill him twice? I mean, you know, like, why not? If he really was involved in those cases in Salt Lake, why not say so? Other than just control, wanting to control, you know, wanting to be in control, because a lot of times... Serial offenders do things like that. I have another theory too, and and I don't know, but he was so messed up. And one of the things they said when he started doing meth is that he would be up for many, many days at a time. Yeah. And I do wonder if consciously he is not aware of all the crimes that he committed. Mm -hmm. And he might not he be, be fully aware. I mean, surely he has some inkling, you know, that, yeah, maybe you did do that. But I, I wonder how much of his uh, trying to play those off or simply that he doesn't remember committing those crimes. Mm-hmm. And you know? it certainly could be, you know, and this is mid 80s when forensics wasn't great and they were kind of looking at him after the fact. Yeah. And what they had was other than the 38. Uh, revolver casings, they didn't have anything else. But, you know, one interesting thing is that there were 38 revolver casings at every single one of his crimes. Yeah. 38 revolvers don't kick their casings out. You have right. to dump them out. Yeah. And it was like they, you know, some some people, some law enforcement believe that this was sort of his calling card, that yeah. he left them behind intentionally because mm-hmm. you could shoot that gun and walk away and no one would and ever take them with you. Yeah. Take them with you. You, you know, I mean, they know with the last case with the um, with the teacher that he did reload in order mm-hmm. to shoot her more times. But before that, those other times he actually didn't reload, but he did 
drop those casings. And that's yeah. one reason why they think that uh, those cases in Salt Lake were him because there were yeah. uh, 38 revolver casings at every one of those. So, yeah. I don't know. You know, he certainly wanted to die with some of his secrets, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he definitely did. So that's it. That is the case of Paul Ezra Rhodes. The Idaho oh. Falls serial killer. Yikes. Yikes. So... Yeah. This, of course, is our Tuesday case. We will be back tomorrow, Wednesday, for one more case this week. And then tomorrow night, Wednesday night, we will be here at 7 p.m. Mountain Time for live case updates. And then we'll be back Thursday night at 7 p.m. for the Psychic Hour. That is also the first of the month. It's April Fool's Day. And (laughs) and we'll tell you a little bit about um, our dad's behavior on April Fool's Day. We will. (laughs) But it's also Marching Orders because it's the first show of the month. So we always love that show. I know you guys love it too. So that's what's still coming. And then, of course, this weekend, watch for some pop-ups. We are Mm -hmm. rolling with some extra. We are popping up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, lots of fun. And patrons, watch for a brand new case coming to Patreon this mm-hmm. week as well, because we have something great coming for you guys also. So mm-hmm. all kinds of good stuff coming. If you're mm-hmm. not a patron and you would like to be to see all of our footage over there, we've done lots of big name cases over there recently. Mm-hmm. Just head over to True Crime Paranormal on pa- or go to Patreon and look for True Crime Paranormal. You'll find us there. Or just head over to our website truecrimeparanormalpodcast.com and you can find that you can find all of the stuff that we've done you can find our merch more info about us you know all the deeds so you know what to do and of course as always like subscribe share we appreciate that very much Mm -hmm. thanks so much you guys for being here this has been another episode of true crime paranormal take care If you're enjoying this podcast, don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. If you're watching us on YouTube, you can always like and subscribe there as well. We also love comments and reviews. True Crime Paranormal is hosted by Katie Weaver and Christy Brower and produced by Christy Brower. True Crime Paranormal is a short girl productions podcast.